0: Actually, uh, a number of years ago, there was a couple in one of our churches who had planned the 25th wedding anniversary, and they had planned for a long time to go to Hawaii, and so they saved up their money, they bought a couple tickets, and they uh, went and bought books, went to the library, got all the information, planned their itinerary, and for months, they were just really looking forward to this day, and so they uh, went shopping, got some summer clothes in the middle of winter, and uh, when the day finally came, they hop in the taxi, get to the airport, all their luggage packed, they go up to the ticket counter, They give their ticket to the agent to find out that the ticket was actually a counterfeit. They had gone online trying to save some money, found some discount travel agency, uh, gave them the money they had, bought the tickets, and it was a scam. It's hard to imagine how that would feel. Uh, They had no money left, at least not enough to buy new tickets, so they just called a cab, went back home, and never went away. Hard to imagine how that would feel. But try to imagine how it will feel one day for many people who will stand before God, who will sincerely believe that they have the right ticket, that they understand what Christianity is, that they consider themselves a good person, a good Christian, whatever terminology you want to use, to stand there before God and to realize that their whole life they were holding the counterfeit ticket, that they were scammed. Either by the gospel they were told or by the gospel they convinced themselves to believe But when push came to shove, they were lost. We have been talking about things I wish Jesus hadn't said. Another way of talking about some of the hard things that Jesus says. And one of the reasons why we're looking at this is not just to be cute, but as we live in these last days, I really believe that the Lord is calling us to discipleship. He really is trying to call us to move away from just what is the kind of the grayness, the ambiguity of just what's come to be called Christian faith. And to actually be followers of His, to actually be disciples, to actually be people who know that they know Him, who have that assurance, but more importantly, who are becoming like Him and allowing Him to cut things away in our lives so that we are actually able to be transforming to lives around us and actually make a difference in our world through the kingdom. We come to another one of these sayings in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, notice this, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I have no doubt this morning that there are probably people here and you don't realize that you're actually holding a counterfeit ticket. What you're believing in, what you're trusting, and you may even be a part of glad tidings for a number of years, but what you really have is a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. Your salvation may be in the balance this morning. Jesus said there are going to be people on the judgment day who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we attend church on a pretty regular basis? Didn't we give a whole lot of money over the course of the years to your cause? You know, didn't we uh, go on a missions trip? Uh, didn't we lead ministries that touched lives, that impacted lives? And here's one that should get into heaven. Didn't we volunteer in the nursery? I mean, if anything should get into heaven in church ministry, it ought to be those who are in the nursery. And yet Jesus says, you can do all of that and still land yourself in hell. Now, before we unpack what Jesus is saying here, I just want to be clear on what I believe he is not saying. Jesus is not saying that you can have a genuine relationship with him and then do a particular thing wrong and lose that salvation right away. I believe Jesus wants us to all live in the confidence of knowing that the same God who saved us did a really good job. When he saved us from our sins, it was a real thorough work. Nowhere in the Bible does it say how many sins or what kind of sins you commit before you stop being a Christian. Nowhere in the Bible does it give us a list of big sins that will keep you out of heaven or small ones that you can get away with. There's just no formula like that. The fact is the love and grace of God that saved you is the same love and grace of God that can keep you. So we're not talking, we'll get nervous here this morning if you have a genuine walk with Christ. Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day that you began your relationship with Jesus, God the Father sealed you by the Holy Spirit. What that means, I believe, is He, just, he locks you in with God. Until the day of redemption, until the day that we see Jesus again. Notice it doesn't say, until the day that you break the last straw and commit that one sin, then it's over. It didn't say that. He will seal you until the day that you actually see Christ for yourself, which is the hope of all of us. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's pretty clear. Eternal life, never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, people have asked me sometimes, well, Pastor Paul, do you believe in eternal security? And I say, no, not as far as that doctrine is concerned, but I've been in Pentecost circles long enough to also say this, I don't believe in eternal insecurity either. I don't believe in you get saved every week and rededicate your life every week and this back and forth seesaw kind of thing. When Jesus saves you from your sin, he saves you completely. If you've started off on the right foot, we'll get to that in just a moment. John said in 1 John 5, He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? Read it with me. That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. You see, what is really unique about the Christian faith that really distinguishes it apart from every other world religion is this. Only the Christian knows without a shadow of a doubt that you can stand before Jesus and know that you will enter heaven. You're not worried about a balance there. You're not worried about good deeds outweighing bad deeds. You know the issue is not good versus bad. It's it's dead versus alive. We who were dead in our sins, Christ has resurrected us. He has given us new life through faith in him. He has taken the punishment of our sins so that we don't have to, that we may be washed and forgiven and begin to walk in a newness of life with confidence and joy as a witness of what God has done through Jesus and can do for others too. So listen again to the words of Jesus. He will say to them on that day, I never knew you. I never knew you. So the point is this, the issue is not about having and losing. The issue is about never having had in the first place. The issue is about counterfeit tickets from the day of purchase. What's happening here, as we've talked about a few times in the last few weeks, is that Jesus is at the height of his popularity in his ministry. There are thousands of people who are following him, and they follow him for the same reason we would have. In fact, they followed him for the same reason many of us maybe still do today. Today. The scripture says that nobody ever taught, nobody ever spoke like Jesus did. And so people were just drawn to what he had to say. He wasn't religious, he talked with authority. In other words, he talked like somebody who actually knew what they were talking about. He, he talked like somebody who actually knew God, who actually knew how you can know God too, and they were amazed by that, and they were drawn by that. They were also drawn by many of the miracles that Jesus had done, just like we would be. And in fact, many of us, if we really searched our heart, it might be interesting to know why we're here this morning. Some of us are here because, very sincerely, we just feel like, well, I, you know, Sunday I just kind of get built up. You know, Sunday the pastor says something half-decent once in a while, and I say, that's true. I don't, I don't get that in the workplace. I don't get that in my home. I don't get that wherever. I'm kind of inspired by that, and I realize that, hey, God's Word is true. I'm inspired, so that's why I come to church. Or somebody else says, well, I love the worship, and I just feel refreshed, and I feel lifted up. And you see, those reasons can be very sincere and very valid but it doesn't mean we're a follower of Jesus. We can be drawn for the same reason. So what Jesus does, he begins to say some of these things that are kind of hard to take because he's saying, listen, at the end of the day, if you haven't counted the cost of what it really means to follow me, then I say in all kindness, the Lord says, I say to you in all kindness, you might as well not start now. You might as well not start on this counterfeit journey only to find at the end of the day that you don't have a ticket, that you're not really one of mine. So you better count the cost. You better take it both barrels between the eyes to understand what it really means to follow me because it's going to cost you something. It was time to have what we call a DTR talk. I don't know if any of you guys remember a DTR talk. A DTR, DTR basically means defining the relationship. A DTR talk is typically what a guy will get. He gets nervous. When you're dating a girl for some time, you realize that talk is coming, right? There comes a time where the conversation is going to be, you know, do you just like hanging around me? Do you just like dating me? Or or what are your intentions toward me? You know, what's your long-term commitment? Have you been to any jewelry stores lately? That's kind of the conversation. The person wants to know, like, like, what are you in this for? And that's what Jesus was basically doing here with the crowd. John writes in chapter 2, verse 24, that because of the miracles that Jesus did, many began to believe in him. But it goes on to say, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. That is, he wasn't impressed by that. He didn't say, oh, they all love me. This is going to be wonderful. It's going to be a lot easier than I thought. No, because he knew them and he knows us. There was no need for anyone to tell him about people because he himself knew what was in people's hearts. You see, Jesus knows as much as He loves us and has compassion on us, He knows how fickle we are. He knows fundamentally how untrustworthy we are. He knows how much as human beings we're so easily led by how we feel at the moment. Jesus knew that in that crowd of thousands, probably 99.9%, even a bit more than that, were just fans, they weren't followers. Because on one occasion, remember, as Jesus began to go a little deeper, every single person in the crowd left him. The only ones who stayed were the disciples, and Jesus looked at them and was very sincere in saying, what about you guys? You guys going too? I mean, feel free if you want to go. Now's the time. Go ahead. And then Peter pipes up and says, well, Lord, where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. We know you in a way that the crowd doesn't know you. We are, we are staying. We are, we are going to stick around. You see, a fan is somebody who watches the games. A fan is somebody who may buy season tickets. A fan is somebody who may spend 100 bucks on a sweater. A fan is somebody who knows all the stats and all the players' names. Now, the fan doesn't actually know the players. The fan never gets on the field, never straps up a pair of skates. The fan never breaks a sweat. Uh, the fan is the person who can you know, talk the game but, but doesn't really play the game. Uh, how many here are Toronto Blue Jay fans? I won't ask how many have been fans for the last 30 years, but the reality is that we have a picture here, there are a lot of people today who buy Blue Jay paraphernalia. They go out, and they'll spend money on their shirt, and they'll paint their face, and they'll buy the hat, and you'll see people around town today. Why? Because the Blue Jays have had a a couple winning seasons. They've been doing pretty well and winning a lot of games, and so there's a lot of new Blue Jay fans. That's a fan. But a follower, as the next slide shows, is the poor misguided soul who wears this jersey demonstrating they are a follower. They have been around for 50 years since the last time their team actually won anything of significance. You see, there's a difference between a fan and a follower. You better take that down. We're going to offend somebody. I'm just kidding. You can leave that for a second. How can you tell the difference? How can you tell if you are a fan or a follower? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if it's only talk, you may not be a follower. Just because you've said the sinner's prayer a long time ago does not mean that you are a follower of Jesus Christ today because talk is cheap. Remember in elementary school, you know, primary, grade one, two, three, whatever, when you, guys, when you like the girl in the class, and you're kind of too shy and awkward to say anything, so you would write a note. And on that little note, you would say, do you like me? Check below. Yes, no, maybe, right? And you kind of got that pass-through, somebody you could trust, you know, and inevitably people would open it, oh, look what he, uh, just passing on. And you'd, you know, you'd wait until you got that note back, and you're just praying, they would say yes. If you opened the note and they said yes, you were so happy. But you didn't go out and buy a ring, right? Because you knew that nice little girl probably said yes to four or five other notes too. Talk is cheap. Part of the problem, I think, in our Western culture of Christianity is that we mistake what we say, what we profess, with what we're actually doing. Jesus said, it's only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what that says to me is I must have a relationship with Him. You see, and here's the distinction. Jesus is saying, don't fool yourself into thinking that if you are trying to live a good life and doing what you think God would want you to do, that that's the same thing as actually doing the will of God. It's not the same thing. Wives, you know this. Uh, You know, if your husband does something wrong, what does he do? He goes and buys you something, usually, right? But if he doesn't take time to have relationship with you, to hear your heart, to know your heart, and just to kind of do what you would like him to do, then he can go and do a whole bunch of things that he thinks you want him to do, when all he's got to do is stop and listen to you to know what she wants you to do. And you may realize you don't need to buy all this stuff and do all you know all you need to do is pick up the vacuum cleaner anyway that's for a marriage seminar but but we do the same thing in our walk with the lord we need to understand this morning that doing things for god will not get you into heaven doing things for god does not impress the lord But doing the will of God does. Now, what's the difference? Doing things for God is basically self-generated. It's it's self-sufficient. Well, this should be good enough, or God should be happy with this, or I'm doing this. Doing the will of God actually means you hear God who is in heaven. And you're doing what He says. You're working on the things He wants you to work on. You're dealing with things in your life that He wants you to deal with. You're stepping outside your comfort zone to be involved in things He wants you to be involved in, where He can meet you. You're actually hearing and doing. You're receiving and responding. You see, we confuse belief with faith. But to really believe in the Bible sense means to have an intimate knowledge of. James says this in chapter 2, You say you have faith, for you believe in God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in horror. What does that mean? It means that real faith, real belief, actually evokes a response. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. You say you believe in God. Talk is cheap. That's easy to say. How is your life changing because you believe in God? What kind of outward evidence is there that you believe in God? You see, the demons believe in God. They don't have a relationship with God, but they believe in God, and it's evidence in the fact that they tremble at his name. They know he's real. If you really know he's real, there's going to be response, and the response is not going to be just get busy, like that old bumper sticker, you know, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. Did you get it? Jesus is coming back. Look busy. It's a joke. I'm only 17 minutes in. Okay, but you hear what I'm saying? We do that. We get busy. It's not about getting busy. It's about giving weight to what the Lord is saying to you. The scripture calls it the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of the person who really gets it. And what the fear of the Lord is, it says... I'm not just going to do stuff that God should be happy with. I'm not going to risk that. I want to know what God's happy with. I want to know why he's made me. I want to know the gifts he's given to me. I want to know know why he put me in a place where I've been working for the last 20 years or this new job that I have. I, I want to know why I'm living in the neighborhood that I'm living in. I want to know why I intersect with the lives that I intersect with. I want to know what God wants me to do in the context of all of that. And I want to hear from him. And when I hear from him, there's going to be a response. I'm going to do something. It may be just praying for people initially. Maybe looking for an opportunity to reach out or have a conversation or meet somebody's needs. But I'm going to be doing something. If I really believe, that's what James says, you say you believe in God, well, good for you. <laughs> that's really nice. Good for you. need to see that you do. What is changing in your life that shows that you really believe in Him? What it means very simply is this, that everything in your life, whether it's your feelings, your decisions, the advice that we give, it's influenced by Him. That your actions and decisions are not influenced by what you're feeling, what you're going through, what what society says, what's more comfortable, but rather by Him. Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter in the Bible that talks about people who actually put their faith in God on the line in everyday real situations. And the chapter opens with these words, this definition of faith. Look what he says. He says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things That we cannot see. That's faith. Faith is not a wishful thinking. Faith is hearing and believing God. And obeying God and aligning myself with God. So that what he says may come to pass. What he says to do, I do. Faith is, despite my feelings, it's being prompted by the Holy Spirit. And saying, okay Lord, I'm going to align my will to your will in this situation. I'm going to do what I feel you prompted me to do. That is what faith is, and you know God's going to come through. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. Let me ask you this morning, what kind of reputation does your faith earn you? What kind of reputation? In other words, when you actually begin to hear what God is saying, do what God is saying, let your life be shaped by the will of God, people notice. People around us notice there's something different. They notice and they understand through your witness that you believe in God, that you believe God's ways work. You give God opportunity to show that through your life. Friends, I really believe this morning that if I don't have a story connected to my faith, I don't know if I really have faith. Let me say that again. If you don't have a story connected to your faith, you may not really have faith. You may be a fan but you're not a follower. Can I encourage you this morning? This event that we've been, we've been announcing uh, for these last several weeks now with Torben, this opportunity to, to, to minister outside, to learn how to minister, and it's not just about going doing street ministry. It's about uh, understanding how God can use you where you are. You may never go on the street again, but I can guarantee you this. If you begin to get a taste for what God can do through your simple faith when you make yourself available, you're going to look at your workplace different. You're going to look at people going through things around you differently. You're going to understand that it's just about you just getting past your comfort, stepping outside and saying, Lord, I'm willing to talk. I'm willing to share. I'm willing to pray. I'm willing to bake a cake. I'm willing whatever the case may be, and I trust that you're going to meet me there in that place of need. You're going to do something neat. I'm I'm expecting that. You see, this is not an event, friends. It's an opportunity. And I really want to encourage you this morning, don't look at this weekend and the long weekend as just something that, well, you know, it's on the counter, they're doing this, they get this guy coming in, they're doing this thing. No, it's not they, it's us. It's about what God wants to release in the Glad Tidings family. It's about what God wants to stir in us. It's about a new level that God wants to bring us into of expectation, of believing God to be God, of experiencing the supernatural, of being a last days church. That's really what it's about. It's a wonderful opportunity. And if you feel this morning like, well, I'm kind of a fan. Well, here's an opportunity to be a follower. Here's an opportunity to really experience the joy of God just touching someone through you and blowing you away. I don't know if I'm speaking on it next week or not. I had a different message planned. That's why I was kind of typing on my phone here this morning. It's always a nuisance when God gives you a sermon during the the service. It's like, Lord, I'm I'm supposed to be worshiping you. I I can't. But if I don't put this down, I'm going to forget it you know, but the enemy just locks us into condemnation. Maybe we'll talk about that next week, but the enemy just locks us into that, and so many of us just live this kind of pseudo-Christianity where if we're really honest with ourselves, we just, we really try our best. We try our best, and I believe James would say, well, good for you. That's not what it's about. It's about hearing and doing, receiving and responding, It's about seeing what the Word of God says, who we are to abuse the people of God, and saying, Lord, if I don't line up with that, well, I want to line up with that. Do I have a story connected to my faith? It's only as faith is being lived out in our lives that we really have a story to tell. And Jesus says, in no uncertain terms, that he is Lord of he who does the will of the Father. That's what separates a fan from a follower. You see, here's what I see when I read this passage. The followers by the thousands, they hung around Jesus all day. They benefited from the miraculous provision of food. They benefited probably personally if they were touched and healed or delivered, or the case may be. They benefited, were encouraged by the miracles they saw. They benefited by just being under his teaching and listening to the wisdom of Jesus, being so inspired. That's wonderful. But you know what? At the end of the day, when the service was over, what did they do? They went home. They went back to bed. The disciples didn't do that. The disciples who were followers, they stayed. They stayed with Jesus. They maybe cleaned up the mess afterward. You know, they, they, they got into the boat, if Jesus said to go on from here. They walked hundreds of miles throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the disciples were people who were associated with Jesus in good times and in bad times. And when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, they went with him. The followers went home. The disciples stayed. There's a research organization called the Pew Research Center, and it says this that the average Christian today considers regular attendance to be once or twice a month. I am a dedicated follower of Christ, I attend once or twice a month. That's a fan. A fan comes and goes, but doesn't stay. A follower stays with Jesus. A fan is someone who comes when they feel like it, who comes when they need to get inspired, who comes when there's nothing else to do, who comes for the reason may be. But when you go home after Sunday, there's not a whole lot happening by way of relationship through the course of the week. There's no time in God's word because his word's not really that important to me. There's no time in his presence because I can get his presence once in a while when I need it and know where to go. But there's nothing happening in a transforming way. There's nothing defining in my life. There's nothing being shaped in my life in a deliberate way as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's just no appetite for it. In John 12, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and what? Dies, it remains alone. It just remains a kernel of wheat. That's all it is. I've got a whole bag in the shed of grass seed. That's all it's ever going to be. It will just stay a seed. Eventually, it'll dry up and be useless anyway. It'll just stay a seed. It's got to go into the ground and die. But its death will produce many new kernels a plentiful harvest of new lives. The way that you tell that someone is a follower, Jesus says, is there's actually fruit in their life. There's the fruit of new people coming to Christ through their life. There's the fruit of character being shaped. There's the fruit of humility of Christ-likeness. And that fruit is there Because when push comes to shove, when you come to the crossroads and the Lord reveals his will to you in a given situation or in an attitude of your heart or in a relationship or whatever the scenario may be, when God reveals his will to you, your response is like John the Baptist who says, I must decrease that he might increase. That's a follower. It's a person who says, okay, God, you've revealed your will to me. Here's my will. I choose your will. My will will die that your will may live, and what you discover is when God's allowed to have his way, there actually comes life, and there comes fruitfulness, and there comes joy, and there comes the pleasure of the Father and the knowledge in your heart that you are his child. I mean, have you ever been around dead people? I'm not talking funerals, okay? I've been around a lot of dead people. Before I went to the ministry, I worked in the funeral home, Uh, mortician, all that good stuff, kind of like Chantel does. Chantel, let's compare stories. Come here. I'm just teasing. One thing I've learned over the years about dead people is this. Dead people don't care what you think about them. They really don't. They don't care what you say about them. They don't care what your opinion of them is. They are absolutely dead. And Jesus is saying the same thing. One of the ways you can tell whether or not you really are his, whether or not you've really died, you are really becoming Christ-like, is you're not concerned about what other people say about you. Now, I don't mean in an offensive way. I don't mean in a defensive way. You might say, for example, I don't care what they say about me. That's not spiritual at all. That just means the old flesh is still kicking you're upset by what they said. I don't care. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people who are following him who don't get upset because somebody else isn't treating them right. A dead person is no longer concerned with self. And Jesus calls you and me to come and die because here's the facts, folks. He can't use you till you do. He cannot use you until you're willing to die. Everything we do is supposed to be about Jesus. Isn't that true? But let's be honest. It's usually about us more than we realize. We always get in the way. And it usually begins with how we start out with Jesus. In our Western culture, we essentially say this. We say it in many different ways. You'll hear it in the way we preach. Sometimes you'll hear it in the, what's you know kind of preached in our culture in the Western countries. It's kind of like this: come to Jesus, and He'll make your life comfortable. I and mean, that's essentially our gospel in the Western culture. You know, it's what Jesus can do for you. It's what I call snuggie theology. Remember the snuggies? I was going to get one once. And then something dawned on me. They created these these snuggies that had sleeves in them. And I realized all that is is putting your house coat on backward. That's all a snuggie with sleeves is. And yet they've sold over 20 million of these things. Why? Because we love to be comfortable. And friends, we love a theology. We love a belief system that is really about us. We don't really want to follow Jesus Christ. The Christ. Because... Jesus the Christ means he is Lord. He is master. It means I'm actually concerned about what he says. I look forward to hearing what he says. I want his input on these things, and I do what he says. That's the Lord. That's the one who says Lord, and he truly is Lord. Jesus the Christ. We kind of want more Jesus the consultant. Our attitude is kind of more like, Jesus, you can advise me on anything you want, and I'll listen. I'm all ears. And then I'll weigh it out, and I'll see how much sense it makes, and whether or not I want to do it. And then I'll decide, that's Jesus the consultant, or we have Jesus the concierge. Jesus the concierge makes sure that you're comfortable. He's the Jesus who makes sure you got everything you need. He's the Jesus who makes sure that you're not disappointed, you're not upset. He wants to make life easier for you. And yet Jesus warns, it's not about saying Lord, it's about him actually being Lord. Being the one you listen to. It's such a subtle deception that we all fall victim to. Jesus said, "We must do the will of the Father." But here's the key: We prefer to create all this activity. So we create Christian lifestyle. We create things that we believe God should be happy with. We create a lifestyle that we believe is good enough. It, it has the air of Christianity. We create activity, but it's a counterfeit to actually doing the will of God. And in fact, if this activity, you know, it's like the bigger, the better. The the more activity I can kind of create, the more Christian things I do, somehow replaces the will of God. I don't want you to miss the significance of what Jesus says here. Look at verse 22. He says, did we not prophesy in your name, they'll say to him. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many great works in your name. What is Jesus saying? These are significant things. These are big things that people are involved in. Big things people are doing. Hear me saying: When I read that scripture, I believe it's almost like Jesus is saying. These are things that people will do. That onlookers will be convinced. Wow, they must be godly. They must be really close to God. God used them to do some mighty things. And Jesus says, I'm not impressed by that. I'm not, that's not what pleases me. If your heart is where it ought to be and I use you to do these things, that's fine. But don't you for a minute mistake the notion that just because you're involved in something big or you think you're touching lives or you're part of something big, don't believe for a moment that means I'm pleased with you. He says, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, what? You workers of lawlessness. Hear me, friends. The evidence of the lordship of Jesus Christ is not in the volume of the good works that you do. It is evidenced in the fabric of your life. That's the difference. It's not about what you do, how much you do, the things that you don't do. It's not about that. It's about who you are. Not what you do, not what you look like, not what you live like, what you don't do. It's about who you are at the level of your heart. Look at Matthew 23. Jesus warned the religious leaders, You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Notice that, all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people. Inwardly, your hearts are filled, say it with me, with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, most of us dismiss that line because we say, well, I'm not lawless. We don't think ourselves as being lawless. A lot of us are. It's a very subtle thing. The theological term for lawlessness is antinomianism. Antinomianism is a long word that simply means this, no law or without law. Now, you might say, well, pastor, it still doesn't qualify. Well, here's where it does. It's an attitude that says, I don't have to worry about the law. That is, I don't have to worry about what God is saying because God is loving and gracious. Grace is covers it you hear that is that not prominent in our culture today it's the grace of God the love of God don't get me wrong it is by grace you are saved through faith it is a gift of God that's wonderful but grace is not a sloppy spirituality and that's the difference a lot of people in the body of Christ today basically we live as we please and we believe that well if I keep messing up God just forgives me that's what he's there for he just forgives me The Bible says, don't be mocked. God's not a fool. You will reap what you sow. If you reap an unrighteousness from unrighteousness, you will reap death. I'm just telling you right now, you're going to die. If you learn to die to yourself and align yourself with the will of God, you will sow life and you will live forever. He said, don't fool yourself. I don't care what your culture is saying. I don't even care what the preacher is saying. If it doesn't line up with the word, I will not tolerate a sloppy spirituality. Grace doesn't just cover all your shortfallings. When Jesus came, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with the law. The law of God hasn't changed. In fact, when the law of God was given, it was given in a glorious setting. The law of God is a glorious, wonderful, holy thing. The the laws of God reveals the standard of God, and the standard of God hasn't changed. What has changed is that now through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to live up to that standard. And when we sin, if we truly repent and confess our sin, there is forgiveness for us, and we're able to continue to walk in the light. That's what has changed. The standard hasn't changed. The holiness of God hasn't changed. It's just that now we have power by the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation and to live right. So when it comes to sin, we are without excuse. But what lawlessness says is, God knows I'm not perfect. God forgives me, so I just keep messing around with sin. I keep on having my own way. I keep on judging other people by their actions and myself by my intentions. I keep being a hypocrite. You see, I can do a lot of good things in other people's eyes. But Jesus sees the fabric of my life. He sees what really makes me up. He sees whether or not there's impurity inside of me that I'm playing around with or tolerating when he's talking about those things. And I say, no, no, Lord, I don't want to deal with that, but, but look at all of this, Lord. No, no, I don't want to stop doing that, but here's what I'll do for you. I'll buy you something else, Lord. I'll do something else nice for you, Lord. Lord says, I don't care about that stuff. That's just filthy rags. That stinks in my eyes. I could care less. What makes you who you are? What's the fabric of your life? A few religious expressions, however impressive they may be to somebody else, Lord says, it's not going to cover it up for me. I know who you are. I know where you live. I'm going to ask some musicians to join me. I want to say to us this morning, saints, we just need to be honest. I mean, let's be honest. Every one of us here this morning, myself included, we would all rather live a Christian life that's based on doing good things, wouldn't we? That's just a whole lot easier in the natural, in the flesh. Just I do a lot of good things for God, and then I'll say, God, come and look at what I've done for you. Lord, tell me I've done a good job for you. But I want us to see how subtly deceptive that is because what that betrays is a heart of of, of just self, self self-sufficiency. It's just doing things my way, believing, appreciating the Lord, believing what he says. Oh, I love your word. You know, Lord, you know, word is true. And, you know, what the preacher says, it's really inspiring sometimes. And your presence, the worship is great. I really leave kind of charged up for the week. But it's all about, Lord, look what I'm doing for you. I hope it's enough. I hope it's good enough. That's, Jesus said, that's a fan. That's not what I'm looking for. A follower instead says this. Not, Jesus, look at what I'm doing for you. But, Jesus, come and look at me. Not what I've done. Come and look at me. Show me where things are wrong. Show me who I really am. Give me a hunger for your word. Why? Because the word of God is like a sharp sword. And what does a sharp sword do? The scripture says it cuts into your heart and reveals not only your right and wrong, it reveals even your motives. The Lord has dealt with me about things that I've done that people are impressed by. He says, Paul, I know your motives. I know why you're doing that. You're doing that to be seen. You're doing that to be liked. You're doing that to be well thought of. It's not that you shouldn't do that, but you're doing it for the wrong. The Lord goes right to the motives. That's why the word of God has to be in our heart, has to be in our life, friends. That's why you need to be reading the word on a regular basis. If you're visiting, if you're new to GLAD Tidings, have been around for a while, can I encourage you, friends, download the YouVersion Bible app, download it, get on track with us, and read the word of God. If you only start with a verse of day, That's wonderful. Move into a chapter a day. That's wonderful. Three or four chapters, whatever. But get into the word of God. Without the word of God, you are easy to deceive that everything's okay. And the Lord says, it's not. You're holding a counterfeit ticket in your hands. You've got to have the real thing. I want to show you it's a lie that you believe in. You have been scammed. You don't know me. You don't know me. But I want you to know me. And there's so much I want you to know in your walk with me. Don't let the presence of the Lord on a Sunday morning be a substitute for getting behind the veil every day in your own walk with God. Oh, there's days that we all miss prayer time. There's days where our prayer time is short, other time is longer. I mean, there's not a religious formula for that. But friends, you need to get behind the veil yourself. You need to get in the presence of God. You need to learn to hear the voice of God for yourself. You need to get into the presence of God and allow the fire to burn away the dross in you and the apathy and the religiousness, all that kind of stuff that a lot of times it's not going to happen here in a few moments. You need the word of God. You need the presence of God. You need to know that you know the Lord. This message this morning is not meant to stir up doubts. It's really meant about us being sure, being certain of who we are and whether or not we know Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to stand with you this morning as we dismiss. Would you just bow your head for a moment? If the ministry team is on the aisle, I'm going to ask them to come. If you're in the crowd, don't worry. You can come in a moment. But if you are available, I'm going to ask the prayer team just to come. We're going to close this service if you need to slip out. But the, the, the service is still on. The ministry time is still available. I just want to ask you this morning if you're just willing to be real, if you're just willing to be real. And if anything in your heart would say, you know, Pastor, I've, if I'm honest, I've, I've just been a fan. I'm not saying that you're going to hell if you're a fan. but You know, in your heart, you're just, I've really kind of been a fan. I've, I've really not been the follower that I know that Jesus wants you to be. And I want to encourage you this morning to, to get that right. Would you bow your head and just close your eyes? I want to pray this simple prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray after me. Everyone's going to pray. But if you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ to truly be your Lord, I want to ask you to do that now before you leave this place. It's just a simple act of faith that says, Jesus, I trust in you. I don't have what it takes to know God and to know that I know God, but I want to know him this morning. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus that he died for my sin. And he died in my place. That I might be forgiven of my sin. That I might come alive to God. That I might know you. Know that I will live forever in heaven. But also experience heaven today. Please forgive me for my sin. Wash me and cleanse me. I surrender my life to you completely. I die to my will and my rights because I know your ways are far better. And I put my trust completely in you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord and Master. Today I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we remain bowed just for a moment? But just very quickly, if you're here this morning and you prayed that prayer for the first time to open your heart to Jesus, would you just get my attention, just raise your hand and look toward me and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer this morning. Is there anyone at all, anyone at all that opened their heart to Jesus for the very first time this morning? Amen. Amen. As we sing this song in worship this morning, I want to invite you, if you're a child of God, and the word of God has stirred your heart, I want to encourage you just to remain for a few moments and allow the Holy Spirit just to deal with the things he's dealing with you about and get those things lined up to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ, to truly submit your will to his will in whatever area it may be, where he's talking to you and saying, it's time to stop this, it's time to start that, it's time to apologize here, it's time to get this priority in your life again, it's time for this, 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 this. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't get entangled again in a bunch of religiousness and bondage. The Lord wants his people to be free this morning. So I want to encourage you this morning, saints, just to do that before you leave. And if you're here this morning and you want someone to pray with you, you want them to agree with you on something that the Lord's dealing with you about, I want to invite you to come and let these folks around the front here just pray with you. If you want to just find a place by yourself, you can kneel. If you want someone to pray with you and anoint you, they will do that. If you're here and you're sick in your body, going through some, whatever it may be. Does, may be totally unrelated to the message this morning, but we're in the presence of the Lord this morning. Before we go, we want to make sure that you have time to deal with that thing that God wants to deal with and set you free today. So the Lord bless you. If you must slip out, we invite those who want to receive prayer to come as we close off this morning.